You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Good morning. How are you going? Richard with you here with another edition of Smart Arts. On the show today, what are we going to talk about? We've got uh, our art attack segment and fistful of celluloid segments on today. So some uh, visual art and film reviews coming up at 9.30 and 11.30 respectively. We've also got some uh, a couple of lads over from Ireland. Lords of Strut are doing a show called Chaos at the Circus Oz Melba Spiegel Tent. So uh, they'll be joining us in about 10 minutes' time. Uh, fresh from Adelaide Fringe. Uh, and uh, also Fringe Ward over in Perth. They've been getting some good reviews where they go. We're also going to find out about um, an exhibition called uh, Gelebulu. Uh, that's probably not the way it's pronounced. I will have to learn the pronunciation. It's a Turkish-Australian perspective on Gallipoli that's uh, opened at No Vacancy Gallery until the 25th of April. Dance Massive, the Contemporary Dance Festival, is still on, so we'll be catching up with choreographer Shelley Lassica at 10am to talk about her show Solos for Other People. Also on the visual arts front, Start Up Top Arts 2015, uh, an exhibition of work by secondary school students at the NGV. We're going to chat to a couple of the students uh, Ashley from Mount Erin Secondary College and Bonnie Jane from uh, Milana Secondary College plus Absinthe by Spiegel World and filmmaker Dean Francis who has a film in the Melbourne Queer Film Festival that festival opens tonight there's no shortage of festivals on in Melbourne at the moment, is there? It feels kind of uh, a little bit crazy. Plus, Castle Main State Festival is on. I was up there on the weekend and uh, very much enjoyed myself. Beautiful town, lovely, very friendly people and uh, some really good shows. So if you can get up to Castle Main uh, during the week or on the weekend, I highly recommend it. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. My first guests for the morning join me in the studio. They've uh, come all the way from Cork in Ireland via Fringe World in Perth and the Adelaide Fringe. Uh, they are Lords of Strut. Uh, Kean and Cormac, welcome to Triple R. How's it going, Richard? Thanks very much for having us on. Good morning, Australia. Thanks for letting us in again. Yeah. We're always a little bit surprised that you let us in, uh, and it is a tourist visa. Even though you can buy tickets to our show, we are not working. This is definitely just a holiday. Yeah, please Thank don't send us to one of your camps. No, thanks, Australia, for letting us in. Uh, you, won't be, you probably won't be sent to one of those camps because you're white. It's kind of oh, like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Is it as simple as that? We're actually, I, I, I'm tanned. I'm you're very not. Tanned. You're so not tanned. I, I put all of you can't, on. You can't get a tan. I, you can't can. get a tan. You just burn. Now, you might get the impression from hearing these two boys that they are a bit of a, uh, a comedy act and a bit of a double act. That's very true. But there's yeah. also a, a very intense physicality to what you do on stage. Yeah, yeah, because we, we started as street performers and circus performers. But 
So mostly like it's physical comedy. We do some like flips and stunts and tricks and da- dance routines, but really it's mostly comedy. The, the, the acrobatics has gotten a little bit less from when we started. Yeah, and the stupid has increased. <laughs> stupid. If people like laughing at really, really stupid shit, uh, that's also deep. Now you should check us out. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of shaping the, the the material that you work with, how do you find the right balance between comedy and physicality? As you said, uh, well, the physicality has dropped away a little bit. It has because it's hard, it's hard to get it in. Like it's, we we have more skills than we put in the show in terms of the circus stuff because we just we write write material and you go kind of go into a dark room and see what comes out and write it and play with it. And a lot of time, just the the circus stuff just doesn't get in anymore because we're going all right this routine. We end, up, we end up with about two hours of material and try and jam it into an hour. Because when you're touring, you yeah, just want an hour Yeah, and then show. when you put it in front of an audience, it changes and, and it evolves in front of the audience. So that's mainly our main our main drive is being there in the room with people and what the hell is funny. It's really it's really involved because it coming from the kind of place that we come from, there's no fort wall. If you're on the street, like anything can happen. Uh, a drunk guy can walk in or a dog walks in or a baby starts crying. So you have to be able to deal with that stuff all the time. So that's actually more interesting for us when the audience kind of feels a little bit alive and involved as well. So so we uh, kind of continually break the fort wall or don't even have a fort wall to to start with. And so so like just proper kinda, Irish builders, <coughs> we forgot the fort wall. Yeah, so it, just <laughs> g- it gives a bit it gives a bit more bu- buzz to the show. Now, in terms then of tell us about how you started out as a as, as performers. An accident. Yeah, it was a total we, we were doing some training with actually some Australian uh, trainers over in Ireland, and when we did acrobatics back in 2008, wasn't it? We just people laughed. Yeah, we because we could do it, but uh, I, I, we're on radio. But I'm not the most petite man. There, the, I look a lighter than I am. No, you don't even look lighter than you are. No. Uh, so I climb on him. So it was just like it naturally was funny already, you know, when we did stuff. So uh, made a show, made and the Lords of Strut show has been going since two, 2009, and it's it's going really this, well. This is our fourth or fifth time in Australia. Fifth year. Fifth year. So the first time we came over, like, because we've got it's a kind of like a, a obscure kind of comedy show. So there is acrobatics and kind of circus stuff in it. But it's not uh, what you would expect from a circus or acrobatics show. It's uh, it, it is kind of uh, absurd and bizarre and really silly. And the first time we came to Australia, we were just in Melbourne busking on the street. So we went down to um, the South Bank where there's like uh, the dudes on unicycles and doing escape from chains. And we went down wearing spandex, spandex, <laughs> and spandex like and hot pants. doing this really silly stuff. And it died like for a we week we made it the other just, guys laugh yeah, they, they, I must other, say they were quite they were they very were, generous to us and we were like keep, guys keep going because they were laughing yeah so like it was it just like died we'd have like yeah. two it took people a week. it took a week of kind of dying before we cracked the nut and then actually we were one of the um, yeah. more successful acts down there for that, that summer and you it's know? good and Australia has been really good for us because um, uh, when you're in Ireland and you're doing this stuff people just think you're a pair of chancers but then when you go abroad people 
public, oh, geez, they must be good. Yeah. And, then, and, uh, and, uh, and the success that we've had in Australia, which has grown each year, we're doing um, bigger theatres and bigger places every year, uh, has also transferred to Ireland. I mean, time kind of helps, helps you build up an audience and helps you build up, people build up appreciation for the stuff that you're doing. And so in Ireland now, we are getting more of a following. And in the places that we keep revisiting in Australia, we're getting more of a following. But this is the first time we've done a show in Melbourne. Well, the last time we were here in Melbourne was two years ago. We did the Melbourne Comedy Big Laugh Out. We were doing the stuff on the street. And that was great crack, you know. But we didn't make it last year. So we're delighted to be bringing our new show, Chaos, to the Circus Hall Spiegel Tent. Yep. Which we do want to point out, if you do have a flyer for it, the times have changed. It's no longer nine, it's eight. Because uh, Keane needs to be in bed by 10. <laughs> yeah, and we're double billing with another excellent show, The Freak and the Showgirl. Uh, Matt Which, Fra- yeah, Fraser and Julie Ash, uh, <laughs> it, it is the f- filthiest, funniest thing. It's great, really great. Now, in terms of structuring the show, one of the things that I'm curious about is that you've created characters for yourselves. So why perform as characters, as these, kind of, as you say, as these chances? Uh, kind of, what, it's famous Seamus and uh, Sean Fantastic, as opposed to performing as yourselves? Um, because they're such idiots. They're total idiots. Like, it, it's high status and low status in, like, kind of the classic kind of realm of it, but it's a little bit more dumb and dumber, as in they're both idiots. One, they're brothers. One is an older brother who's a total pr- and a younger brother who's really stupid but more lovable and it just gives us it gives us a lot of scope so one can be like uh, the dick and lead the whole thing and the other can come and upset everything and if if you have somebody who's really mean on stage people love to hate someone it can be really mean but if that person is just a solo act then everybody just hates them but if it's a double act and there's someone kind of counterbalancing it then you can actually get away with a lot of stuff so you can have like really kind of a nasty character as long as there's a more lovable person in, in the room. So which one's which? Who's lovable uh, and who's nasty? He's the, he's the <laughs> prick, yeah. Uh. He's, it's a hard, hard one, you know. When we started out, um, we actually had uh, uh, status to flip side of it. So uh, we started and I was higher status and he was lower status. He's gone then, to the Gallier school in France for a bit, you know, and he basically is the guy who gets pied in the face. So that means he is the guy who has, you know, I pie him. That's like, like that, they're technical terms. <laughs> yeah, really technical when you're talking about yeah, comedy, who gets pied in the face. Who looks yeah. who looks stupider? Who yeah. looks like he they should be? Pulled down. Yeah. Now to give uh, people an idea of how successful uh, Chaos has been as a show, uh, I'm, it's my understanding that you you were the first ever Dublin Fringe Festival show to then be invited onto the stage of the of Ireland's the National Theatre. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. We the were, were like. You know, it's the National Theatre. It's where real theatre happens. Yeah, no, we were Dublin French and it was great. We really we really kicked it there and it was the first time in a few years we brought our an indoor show to Dublin and it was great. It pretty much sold, sold every ticket that we had for it and it was in the Abbey and it was the first time the Abbey had had anything like that before. It was the first time they'd partnered with the Dublin Fringe and we were the first show that ever happened in it. And at the Abbey, if, if there's Irish people listening, they'll know what the Abbey is, but uh, the Australian audience... It's um, it's pretty stuffy theatre. It's kind of grandmother theatre. Maybe they'd have Beckett in it, but that would be them being alternative if they had Beckett in it. Yeah. So to have Lords of Stroke, which is like silly and a little bit dirty and not uh, considered uh, sophisticated theatre, uh, it was uh, quite a leap for them. 
And was it a leap for you as well? Did you have to adjust your performance style to be to play that indoors venue, for nah, example? No, it's just no, a stage. No, it's just a stage. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. the dude who runs there, what's the name of the dude? Uh, Chris, runs, Chris Nelson? No, the no. dude who runs there, Abby. Oh, God. Uh, I can't oh, a some, real Irish name. Like, one of those yeah, Irish names that I, I've never even heard, you know? <laughs> uh, but he loved it. He was gushing over it. Yeah, so, yeah. you know what? It's I, like. They're, they're, they're tied into trying to uh, program national theatre, so it's got, it has to have a certain thing. So when they get handed over the program, to the Dublin Fringe who the only reason we actually got it was because we were in Australia but last I year th- I reckon they were pretty happy to see people who were younger than 30 in their theatre anyway so. actually I see that the Rubber Bandits played there recently did they? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, they're finding ways uh, of programming alternative Irish stuff now in there, yeah. you know. Uh, so oh, we, we would, like to think that we're leading the way. We would like, we would like to thank uh, your Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, for his St. Patrick's Day dress. Oh, that was yeah. a beautiful yeah. piece of work. He's, he's an eloquent man. I don't think he's creepy at all. <laughs> it's, it's non-offensive to Irish or Vietnamese or Indonesians or anyone else and, um, or Scottish who they get all the money and because they're, they're they're the, the they're a, he sound, make the Scottish sound like they're a pack of bankers. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Tony Abbott, uh, t- thank you for your emotional uh, and eloquent address. We've been chatting with uh, Kieran and Cormac from Lords of Strut, guys. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, nice nice thanks very much uh, for having us. Attack is our fortnightly visual art review segment. Last time Ace Wagstaff was in solo. This time Ty Snaith is in solo as Ace is unwell. Yes, How are you going? I'm, I'm actually also unwell, but it seems that Ace is more unwell, so he wins. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. tag, no, tag team sickness. That's right. But, you know, nothing stops us from talking about art, even snot. Nothing will stop <laughs> us. So I hope you're okay, Ace. I hope you're in, in bed with some chicken soup. And uh, we both actually went to see this new show that... Um, I, I'm really excited about it, and I think Ace was too. I'll speak on his behalf, but let's just talk from my perspective now. Sure. Um, at, it's called Man, so I know what jumps to mind, Richard, but think again. Cause it's the Island of Man, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> uh, no, it's a slightly ironic title. It's a show of um, six female painters, so... I think they're just the the warp bit is silent in the title. Yeah, so it should be called Woman, but um, I guess that's a bit of a joke or something. It's at Tristan Koenig Gallery in Glasshouse Lane in um, Collingwood. So just off Wellington, if you know that end, the top end of Wellington. A little commercial gallery there, which shows, I mean, you know, like he does show quite a lot of abstract painting. And I think this is a really interesting show for Tristan Koenig, but also for Melbourne. Um, it marks a, a very important point, I think, particularly in painting in Melbourne, where a lot of female painters are finally starting to be recognised, and in a very particular kind of field of painting. So all of these works in the show, all six painters are working with oil on linen or on board. Um, so very much in that tradition of Painting, painting, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, f- I found it a really... I mean, 
feminine, I know feminine is a, is a dirty way, a dirty word in, in describing art, but it is, a, it is in a, if you can think about the word feminine in a positive light for a second and put it with abstraction, and I think that that's the best way for me to explain this show, is it is very much a, a celebration of feminine abstraction and, and a nice counterpoint to what we've seen a lot of lately, which I like to call crapstraction. Um, it usually looks like some egotistic male has painted it with his penis or something, you know? And it's a nice counterpoint to that because as much as they're, they're very much abstractive paintings, um, they're very considered. And in quite a lot of them, um, they come from quite a personal perspective, which often I think abstraction or abstract painting seems to do the opposite. So it distances the viewer from any kind of personal sim- symbology in the work. You know, that's the point, is to, is to take all of that reference away, you know. So you're purely looking at colour field or you're looking at space or movement, which in all of these paintings you are also. There is a lot of interesting colour and interesting movement in all of these works. Like movement is a reoccurring theme. But interestingly, I found there's a lot of personal reference in these paintings. So in some of them, the perf- personal reference has been sort of like veiled or in, for example, someone like Yvette Coppersmith's work, which, I mean, you probably know Yvette's work, but she's done this recent series of paintings where she asked different artists to come to her party and bring an object over summer. So she she had all of these objects and she arranged them into still lives and then she painted them. But the works in this show, you, you can't really tell what the objects are but you can tell that they're there so there's sort of like an abstracted native flower there's something that looks like a bottle there's an arrangement and there's a reference to you know Sane Mestrum in the title so you assume then that they're her objects so there's this interesting bridge I think that's happening where these artists are alluding to actually quite expressive objects or figurative objects but then very much using the language of abstraction to portray them so and yeah. in, a, in quite a feminine way and uh, there are samples of uh, I think there's something like 17 images of the artist's work on the Tristan Koenig yeah. website so it's uh, Tristan Koenig uh, T-R-I-S-T-I-A-N Tristan Koenig K-O-E N-I-G. N-I-G.com yep. and just go to the current exhibition page. Man, and the artists in the show, um, I'll list them all. So there's Kirsty Budge, Yvette Coppersmith, who I was just mentioning before, Deanna Giorgetti, Julia Gorman, uh, Laura Skirl, and Kate Tucker. And the works are substantial works. You know, like the painting by Kate Tucker is the largest she's ever made to date. So it's actually quite big. It's 190 by 160 centimetres and really ambitious. Like I think for a group show these works are, are very ambitious works and, and really substantial. Like you know often you see a group show of painting and you know, some of them are little and they're not really. Th- these could all stand alone in the space you know on their own and I think it's just so exciting to see not only a commercial gallery dedicate a whole show to female oil painters but also these and they're all quite young. They're all sort of mid to start of their practice these these artists just really competing with male painters and if not doing a better job in my mind um, so some of the other works like Deanna Giorgetti's work is probably the most 
I guess you'd say the most graphic of them. It's 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 like a, a long perpendicular or you know long narrow canvas that's split in half, and it's called town and country. The top half of it is like a it's a, a, a yin yang symbol, but with elements of the rainbow flag that's added right. in, perhaps, and and sort of like a purple swoosh across the middle, and then the bottom is almost like that tribal um, zigzaggy thing with with peach in the middle. And I think the joke in this painting, which I love, is you know the idea of the division between town and country, what that means as a woman as well. So, you know, like in town we have a lot of different ideas around gender, around the rainbow flag, for example, whether it means that or not, but also around spirituality and the irony involved in all of those things. Whereas in the country, this is how I read it anyway, in the country it's distilled to sort of like this tribal pattern that you put on your cushions almost, like that's being really radical. Or alternatively, you could also look at that piece uh, as um, the those black and white zigzag patterns, for mm. example, very strong, sharp geometric shapes could be representations of mountains with flat plains between, then yeah. the what you called the purple swoosh could be the curve of a river yeah. separating north side and south side. So it's so interesting that we read all this different language into these works that um, are, t- are technically abstraction, but... I- they're more than that, if you know what I mean. Like, there's almost a joke in that painting, which is really difficult to do as a painter. There's also some work in this show uh, by Kirsty Budge, who's a relatively young artist but doing really great things, and she has a massive canvas called, that's 205 centimetres by 148, so really big, um, and it's it's called... What? Wait? No, wait, what? How long have you known I was a jughead? And it's sort of got this... I guess it's in a similar vein to Yvette Coppersmith's where it's obviously a scene, so it's it's almost a still life that has this kind of jug, bit of a palm tree, a table-esque-looking element. Um, but it is abstracted to the point where it's almost on the same plane. So you sort of then see it as a series of, like a little face within the jug, a series of blocks of colour. But it's also got this language that for me is quite sentimental. It's, it's sort of like a bit of early 80s, almost Ken Donish in a, in a very, very cool way that not, not many people are brave enough to do at the moment, but I think Kirsty's doing it in a way that collectors want to buy it. You and know? interestingly, as you referenced the feminine earlier, it's a domestic setting. Mm. It's a kitchen. You can see the kitchen sink, the fridge, the window. Uh, but not that men can't be domestic as well, Richard. Of course not, but uh, <laughs> there's something about the... Uh, I just find it interesting that this kind of familiar domestic scene, as you say, it's been it's been flattened, it's mm. been kind of... It's, it's also been uglified a bit, which I think is a very feminine take now on domesticity. It's like, we do we, I think it is typical to say that the internal is read as feminine like that idea of internalising things or emotionalising things but a reaction now as painters is that we want to, as women we want to uglify that, just like men are allowed to, you know, and I think that Kirsty's done it in a... She treads a really fine line where it's ugly on one hand, but it's actually really um, desirable on the other hand. And that is the secret ingredient that every painter wants to get. And I think, to her credit, she's she's doing that really well at the moment. So it's a, it's a show that you can't actually describe... You can't do it justice in description over the radio. So it's one of those things where I think you need to go in, spend some time with the paintings, let them seep in. Um, I mean, I have no doubt you'll want to buy one of them. Like, I, I wanted the... Ho- 
not to take the whole show home with me. And it's that's um that I think that's a good sign of a very interesting good show. Like you want to spend more time with the work. So the show is called Man. It's a group show on at Tristan Koenig Gallery, 19 Glasshouse Road in Collingwood. Uh, the website is www.tristankoenig.com. The exhibition Man is on now until the 4th of April. Oh, the 4th. I thought it was first. So, yeah, the 4th of April. And if you are, I mean, I, I mentioned Yvette Coppersmith's work in the show earlier. Yvette's on a real roll at the moment. Like, her is, I guess they're referencing cubism almost, but um, definitely still lives and the world of still lives. A little bit of Australiana in there as well. If you're interested in those two paintings of hers that are in the show, she has another show on at the moment in at Fort Delta. Um, so, and that's a similar body of work. So, if you want to kind of delve further, if you see a vets and you think, "Wow, that that girl's rocking it," which she is, you can venture into the city and um, have a look at her solo show at Fort Delta as well. In I think I can never remember where. I think it's it's under one of the arcades in the city. I know how to find it, but I don't know where, <laughs> where it actually. I know is. that feeling far too yeah. well. Yeah, you operate yeah. on autopilot that's sometimes. Right. So just Google Fort Delta exhibition, and uh, you will find that as well. Yeah. Ty, thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Sorry about my coldy, snotty voice. Yeah, but. you sound much healthier than I expected you to <laughs> okay. after your text message. So uh, we'll catch you and hopefully Ace once he's back on his feet in a fortnight's time. Thanks, Richard. Now, there is a lot happening this year. There's... Uh, just about every single gallery, theatre company, symphony orchestra, chamber uh, opera group I know are doing something this year around the Gallipoli uh, centenary celebrations. Um, so there's a range of stories to be told, but what fascinates me is that so many of those stories tend to forget the other side of the story. Um, yes, uh, Gallipoli is a story about the Anzacs, uh, a lot of whom were from New Zealand, don't forget, so it's not just an Australian story. But uh, Gallipoli is also about the Turkish experience, and a new exhibition which opened in Melbourne last night is exploring that aspect of what to us may be a, a familiar story, but this is a chance to see that story through different eyes. The exhibition is called Gelibolu, a Turkish-Australian perspective on Gallipoli, and uh, curators Juliet Hansen and Neil Govan join me in the studio now. Good morning to you both. Good, Good morning. morning. Uh, Nilgan, let's start with you. Where did the seeds of this, this exhibition come from? Uh, the seeds uh, came from 15 interviewees, that interviews that we conducted with the Turkish-Australian community, varying in age, background, uh, stories. So we interviewed them and then sat in a room for days and pulled out all these themes. Um, that some are common, some are really unique responses as well. So from that, um, we worked out that the Turkish-Australian perspective is really diverse and that's why we've used art as the platform to be able to convey a variety of perspectives. And Juliet, in terms of that variety of perspectives, the sheer fact that you're using the Turkish name for, uh, for the area is a clear indication of kind of reclaiming a story but not just, well not reclaiming but, but certainly expanding the story beyond one limited narrative. That's right. Um, I think it's a very clear way of letting people know that um, 
the way that you might understand history and that your knowledge of history, in fact, is really determined by where you might come from and also, of course, your own personal history. So that difference in the language and the way that people talk about historical events um, very much is determined by, yes, where you're from. Um, so, and because of that, that's why there are such a diversity of ideas that we wanted to get across in, in the exhibition. And not just a uh, diversity of ideas, but a diversity of art forms as well. This is an exhibition which includes film, it includes paintings, it includes digital work. Uh, so using a variety of forms to explore a variety of stories. Yeah, it, the exhibition really was um, hybrid by design, in fact, in that it, does con um, it incorporates contemporary art alongside a more museological display of a timeline um, that shows Australia's and Turkey's military histories, as well as major events in their nation building. Um, that the timeline includes events leading up to uh, Gallipoli and then right through to present day, and it's accompanied by interactive iPads. So that's one part of the exhibition, and then the rest of it is a, an immersive experience um, using contemporary art and the film that Nilgen worked on. Um, the artists have, as part of their practice and research, have really responded to the themes of peace, uh, remembrance, commemoration, and uh, one international artist as part of this exhibition, Esar Selan, has done this beautiful installation with cacti and pots from Chanakkale, um, hung in a spiralled, woven um, material. And the cacti, she hopes, is a, is a metaphor for how fragile peace is and how much awareness uh, we need to even consider that, let alone conflict and hostility. But she addresses peace. So, And then uh, mm -hmm. Chidam's work uh, is an installation of TV monitors displaying... Uh, weeds growing through aged concrete and the monitors themselves are the exact dimensions of the Commonwealth Cemetery headstones and she uh, noted how immaculate those cemeteries are maintained and, and so by juxtaposing the weeds and the, um, in this installation she questions the heroic conception of war, glorification, sacrifice. Looking through the, the exhibition catalogue, one of the things that strikes me is that as well as those weeds in that particular work, there are other elements using floral components, for example, There's a re and so, which to me is, seems to be talking about growth and life, the fact that so often what we, when we focus on Gallipoli, we're focusing on death and loss, but the flip side of that is growth and change and renewal which some of these works definitely seem to be reflecting on and exploring. There is um, a lot of natural symbolism, I think, in the exhibition, um, and I think that refers to the importance of land, particularly the coastline as well, is, is very sort of evocative when you talk about Gallipoli. Um, and also one artist, um, Elif Sezen, was very interested in how uh, nature is also destroyed in war as well, alongside the human loss, of course. Um, and Elif's work talks about how, you know, Gallipoli is this collective uh, 
experience, but to break it down into the personal, bring it down to these objects that she used, mirrors with, you know, hand-drawn writing and uh, small symbols of memorials. Um, so she's breaking, breaking down the collective consciousness that continues to perpetuate or has perpetuated about Gallipoli. But you're absolutely right, though, in that it does have that... Um very positive focus, which I, I almost wasn't expecting at the beginning when we invited artists to actually respond to four uh, main themes that came out of the interviews that uh, Nilgen and Dennis, the co-curators, uh, undertook at the beginning of the project. The four themes were the, the promotion of peace, a unified remembrance, commemoration and sacrifice, as well as Turkish-Australian cultural her- heritage. So despite the fact that the exhibition is looking at a past event, I really think that it's essentially future focused. Um, It looks at how we can all live in this more unified peaceful manner Um, and so although it's it's reflecting on how should we view the past um, but really thinking about what we should be remembering and what we should be then passing on to future generations as well. Which is an an important thing I think for uh, any story looking at war for example it's so easy to it's one of the things that I'm really conscious of with many of the Gallipoli celebrations and events and, and concerts and so forth that have been announced and programmed for this year uh, so many of them are really getting caught up in to me what seems to be the glorification of uh, of this event uh, the making of Australia etc all of those kind of national myths and myths are dangerous things we have to interrogate them we have to kind of not tear them down but we have to open them up and analyse them and it really seems that this exhibition is is fulfilling that role in a significant way. We did ask that question directly, do you believe in this friendship myth between Australians and Turks and and the bond and uh, rightly so most of them do but the questions still remain. The, our, the Turkish-Australian community are constantly asking questions. They don't have the answers. There is growth. They are active, but they still question what is our place in this? What is the appropriate way to convey some of or redress some of the uh, misinformation that's out there? Uh, we've been speaking with two of the curators from the exhibition, Juliet and Nilgan. Thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much, Thank you, Richard. As you've been hearing on the show over the last couple of weeks, we're in the midst of Dance Massive, which is a a biennial contemporary dance festival presented by Arts House, Dance House and the Malt House uh, in partnership with Ausdance Victoria. There's a great range of works on uh, and the festival is still going, so you've still got time to see works if you haven't. One work that you may wish to see is Solos for Other People by Shelley Lassica, who joins me now in the studio. Good morning. Hi, Richard. Now, you've long had an interest in collaboration uh, and in placing works outside the the traditional theatre space Uh, and those interests combine in, uh, in this new work, Solos for Other People. You're putting it on 
in a basketball court at the Carlton Baths, I understand. Uh, yes, we're working um, in this very, very beautiful basketball court, which has, you know, a number of glass windows. So for us working in there, um, you know, there's constantly other activity on. The audience get to see us in relation to all the other things that go on there during the different times of the day um, in the in the, the the whole complex which is great we love it um, and I, you know for me to, to put something in that sort of space again just recontextualizes dance um, as part of a whole range of physical choices for people and spatial and social choices context is quite significant for you isn't it in terms of the context of work is placed in absolutely and that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with um, you know the range of dance artists that I work with and also visual artists and sound artists um, because I think that it allows people, the audience, to make all sorts of different connections between different sorts of histories of dance um, and different ways of moving and and how people constitute that in their memory and their understanding. So, you know, the sound we're using um, that Milo Kozowski um, designed for this piece is incredibly spatial um, and is actually on our bodies, so it moves with us. Um, and uh, so there's also there's no... Um, there's no optimum point to actually hear or see everything. So wherever you're sitting, you will see and hear the work slightly differently. When you say the sound is on the body, what do you mean by that? Um, we have little players actually on us um, that um, transmit the sound. Okay. Now, in terms of transmission, that's also a key element of this work, the idea of exploring how information is transmitted from you, the choreographer, to the, the dancers you are working with, which strikes me as, is this a, a dance version of Chinese whispers, for example? <laughs> um, well... You know, in any relationship between... Uh, because with choreography, there's no set text like there is with, um, you know, a, perhaps a, 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 a musical score or a, an existing play, although, of course, all performers um, create their what they're doing in relation to the existing score. So the way that I work with all the dancers is to... You know, I've been working with them, some of them for a very long time, and this piece is taken about two years to make and continual discussions and rehearsal over quite a long period of time with all of them individually so I worked with them all individually and we only came together at the very end of the performance period of the rehearsal period and into performance and I was very interested in how the different sorts of conversations that happen and the different ways of working with people, the different ways that choreography is built between a choreographer and a, and a dancer um, and that sort of reciprocal relationship. And all of the dancers in the work, um, Natalie Abbott, Joe Lloyd, who's a regular on this show, and others, you've worked with all of them previously, I believe. I have, um, you know, from a range of a couple of years to almost 20 years. And most of them have their own practice as choreographers and and dancers as well. Yeah. So it's it's um it's about the interchange of information. I'm also interested, you know, I spent a long time only making solo work and then I've made work for, you know, various sized ensembles. And it's uh it's it's a sort of like a different form in some way so how they they actually then um 
can co-inhabit those ideas, I guess. In terms then of integrating those solos, all these separate solos that you've made individually with the the dancers into an overall show, are the audience then just going to see a progression of solos? No, they they see how these these different conversations unfold together and and that's, that's kind of the really amazing thing for me um, watching it as a choreographer having built that into this work from the very beginning from its inception finding thinking about how how it is that people apprehend dance and um, and how these kind of systems of information work together these different conversations why has dance remained for you such a, a fascinating art form that you've built your career in this this particular form of expression? Um, <laughs> big question. <laughs> um, I just think dance communicates in a very, very particular way um, and resonates with everyone because uh, with the way people move and orient themselves in space, the way they socialise, the way they make decisions about where they're going to sit on the tram, they're, they're all to do with this kinesthetic awareness and kinesthetic understanding of how they are in the world. And I think that's what dance, that's the language that dance is existing in and then develops from. I find it interesting that you've used, we keep using the words, words like communicate and language and so on with dance, given that I think for some people who aren't familiar with dance and contemporary dance in particular, they find they may, perhaps because they haven't seen it, they think they won't understand it. They think it won't communicate anything to them. Um, what do you say to people like that to perhaps encourage them to, to consider what a dance work such as your own can say to them? Um, I think, you know, in, in using the word language, I guess I'm not just using the word in relation to the spoken and written word, the, um, but in terms of other sorts of languages and modes of communication, um, which, as I mentioned before, I think they're things that people respond and function with all the time. So understanding maybe not... Um, being able to necessarily describe exactly what how one responds in words, but it may give you a particular sort of feeling or a particular emotion or may just change your sense of the space around you. And I think there are all sorts of different ways of understanding dance. In terms of the space, uh, how has the basketball court that you're using as a venue changed your perceptions of the work and has it altered the work in any way? Um, because I always knew that I wanted to make, was going to make it in for, for the basketball court, it just always enhanced it. For me, it has also some historical resonances. Um, Merce Cunningham in Adelaide Festival, I absolutely. believe. Absolutely, yeah, that's one of them. And also the very, very first piece that I ever made as a solo piece for myself, um, uh, I performed in a basketball court at my school. <laughs> And it was very conscious too, because I was—I've always been interested in in how different, how people see things in different ways, in different sorts of spaces, in different contexts, the way those things are set up. And I think it's fascinating. We've been talking to Shelley Lassica about her work, Solos for Other People, which is on as part of Dance Massive. Shelley Lassica, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, Richard.
We just heard there from Perfume Genius all along the name of that track from the album Too Bright. It's 21 minutes past 10 a.m. Speaking of bright, the talents of uh, a range of students uh, presented in the exhibition at the NGV Start Up Top Arts 2015, which for over 20 years has been uh, this exhibition, the series has been presenting outstanding work by students who've completed art or studio art studies in the Victorian Certificate of Education, the VCE. Uh, the latest crop of students' work is currently on show from today through until the 28th of June in the ground level NGV studio uh, at uh, Fed Square and two of the artists join me in the studio now. Bonnie Jane Mance from Malorna Secondary College, have I got that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and Ashley Newman from Mount Erin Secondary College. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So, look, um, in turn, for each of you, kind of maybe, uh, Ashley, we'll start with you. Um, when you were told your work had been selected for the exhibition, what was your immediate response? Um, I was so excited. I was actually at a um, hospitality course at the time, and I was supposed to be paying attention, but I got the message through on my phone, and I just kind of rang my mum straight away. I was like, Mum, I got in, and I was just, I was bouncing all day. <laughs> I'm not surprised, yeah. And Bonnie Jane, what, what, tell us about your feelings when, when you found out. Well, when I got the email, I was actually getting ready for my year 12 formal, so it was a bit overwhelming. There were so many emotions, so many things that I was getting ready for, and it was just amazing to find out that they'd selected two of my pieces to be shortlisted and then one to go on to be actually selected for the gallery. Yeah. It's, does it feel like this is um, drawing a line under your high school, kind of your secondary school careers, or is this actually kind of rather than drawing a line and fin under something and finishing it, is this the start of something new? Um, yeah, it feels like it's opening a lot of opportunities and um, it's all exciting. So, yeah, it's just really overwhelming at the moment having everything public and out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in terms of uh, the work being public, uh, have you had a chance to go into the gallery yet to, to see it hung and see it, see it? Yes, we had a media preview yesterday and then we had the open night last night and it was a wonderful meeting, all the beautiful artists and their beautiful artworks. How does it feel to, to actually be on show in the NGV? Because that must be pretty remarkable. It's very overwhelming. It's amazing to be with all these other beautiful art pieces and it just feels like such an achievement to me and all of my hard work has finally paid off for something for other people to see and to enjoy. Yeah, it was really surreal and seeing everyone else's artwork was just incredible. Some of the stuff that you see that was made during the year while you're simultaneously doing your own project and everyone did so well, it was insane. Tell us about the the, the kind of range of works that are that are on show. We had everything from 3D models to like drawings and paintings and photography and um, we had a few mechanical projects and they were really awesome. Now, why, uh, before we talk about your own work uh, that's in the exhibition, tell us why you've chosen the visual arts as, as something to study uh, in secondary school. Well, I've always enjoyed art. I've always enjoyed very visual things, and I feel it was just something that I've always enjoyed, and it's something that I've always been able to do and felt confident in as I can express myself through my artwork. Yeah, my feelings are pretty much the same. Like, I've always loved drawing and um, creating images with pencils and yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things that strikes me that there's a commonality between your work is that you're both portraying essentially portrait 
uh, works. Uh, but obviously some different approaches because you're both different artists. But uh, So, for example, uh, Bonnie Jane, your work is, amongst the other things, um, exploring kind of notions of beauty and the body and, and inspired by dolls, I understand. Yes, it's inspired by dolls and fashions that are based off doll-like qualities. And so my artwork is a self-portrait of me because I often dress a bit alternatively. And so I felt... What better way to represent myself than to show that in an art piece? And, uh, Ashley, you've also done a portrait, but rather than a self-portrait, um, who have you portrayed? Um, so I've drawn, I've done drawings of YouTubers or people who are um, big on social media, and my my art is more of an exploration of people who can re- uh, reach large, large audiences. Sorry. Um, and, yeah, it just I've always been inspired by them, and so I base my folio around them. Um, in, for people who haven't uh, done uh, these studies yet, tell us about the process of putting a folio together because it, it, it could just sound pretty easy. Oh, just put a folio together, grab a few things, put them in. But tell us about the work involved. Um, well, first of all, you've got to come up with a concept and you have to keep developing it. So you're constantly working on your ideas, constantly sketching things out or um, just developing your concept. And then you've got to go through a process of um, kind of making mock finals. So like... Um, making things that might look like your final image before you can actually get there, but it takes an entire year to get to the final body of work. So, uh, How much uh, refining of ideas goes on through the year? Uh, you basically spend the whole year refining your ideas, coming up with ideas, pushing your ideas to the absolute limits they have, asking even your teacher if she can give you any ideas or he. And, yeah, you will never stop thinking. Even when you put in your final pieces, you'll constantly be thinking, I could have done more, I could have done this, I could have done that. It never stops. So even seeing the work on the gallery wall, have you, did you step away and go, oh, if only I'd done that or done this or changed Definitely. that line? <laughs> Uh, constant process of self-examination, I guess. So where to now? Uh, is uh, the visual art something you and you both intend to continue studying and working? Yes. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Um, do you see yourselves enrolling? Kind of, have you already enrolled uh, to continue fine arts careers? Or um, Mine's not particularly fine arts. I'm doing animation as a um, tertiary study, so um, it's still along the line of the creative arts but not like traditional. And I do communication design at Swinburne, which is not exactly fine arts, but it's applying my artistic skills to create designs, so I think that's fairly fitting. Yeah, absolutely. Ashley and Bonnie Jane, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank Thank you for having us. Richard Watts with you here. Smart Art's the name of the program. We've talked about a range of art forms on the show so far. So now we're going to talk about uh, what has become something of a a bit of a tradition, a a Spiegel tent with a show that combines elements of circus and cabaret. Uh, The show is called Absinthe from uh, the creators of Empire and uh, is in Australia performing on the rooftop of uh, Crown uh, under the Spiegel tent. Uh, two of the performers from Absinthe join me in the studio, Micah Isagawa and Paul Matthew Lopez. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. Thanks so much. 
So what is it about absinthe that uh, is unique? What defines it? Because as I've said, these kind of shows, uh, uh, Leclique, uh, Le Soiree, etc., have become not quite a dime a dozen, but there's, there's now they're quite a familiar. We're hip. It's super hip. That's what's in like we're the pendulum from Cirque du Soleil style spectacle. Spe- spectacle has now swung to the variety show. The reality that the, the proximity is closer. So. To answer your question, we're, the defining element for absinthe, which would set us apart from any other Spiegel show or a Spiegel tented show, um, is that we're probably the bawdiest show in the land. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a big claim. Um, but we, you know, we—I mean, we're circus artists, and it's a really small community, and we just happen to have two of the most fantastic um, comedians working in the business right now, uh, playing the gazillionaire and Penny, the hosts of the show, and, and they're. Very clever, very intelligent, and um, very funny and very bawdy. Bawdy is good, definitely. A bit of adult entertainment. Yeah. But, uh, um, and contrasting then that with physical prowess, uh, Micah, you're part of, a, of, of an aerial straps duo. Yes. Uh, tell us about uh, your act, uh, because aerial straps, I'm used to seeing solo, but mm-hmm. not duos so often. Yeah, well, it takes a lot of trust in your partner to do the act, and it's quite a romantic story when you come to see the show so it's a little different than the rest of the acts in the show i think yeah yeah it's they're, they're definitely the 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 act that has an actual love in like it, everything is kind of hard edgy and funny and there there are our soft little heart center <laughs> well, which is good because you want you need contrast in this kind of variety show mm-hmm. if it's just the same tone throughout it starts to become a little bit uh repetitive so kind of bringing in that kind of emotional tone and a softer note to balance out the 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 acrobatics and the and the energy yeah i think that's i mean not to speak for her act but i think that's <laughs> for their act but i think that's exactly what it does it, it's 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 beautiful. Sometimes I cry. Thank you. <laughs> Micah, tell us a little bit about your background and how long had you been training uh, to, to do this? Well, I trained at a circus school called Circus Juventus in St. Paul, Minnesota for about seven years while I was in middle school and high school. And it was more of an after-school activity, like in place of a sport like soccer or anything like that. And so that's my main training before this show. Um, and... Uh then Paul, you're, you do a high wire act, which is also clowning. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm one of the members of the frat pack, um, and we're the touring frat pack uh, here in Australia. And um, yeah, like you know, my Twitter handle is clown on wire, right? I'm a I'm a clown, but um, it's a legitimate wire act. We do full tricks. You know, we're above the audience. Um, we're not very high, in my opinion, but my perspective might be a little bit askew. <laughs> it's difficult to get too high in a Spiegel tent. That's one of the things. You're not going to be 50, 60, 70 feet above the ground, uh, yeah. given the, the, the How, size of the venue. <laughs> of course, yeah, but my partner, Alexi, quite often brushes his hair against the top of the tent. So, it, it's uh, yeah, we fill the space. It's, it's pretty exciting. And d- tell us about bringing the clowning element into the high wire act to, to get the, the right balance. Well, it's not, you know, when you say, when I say clown, I don't mean like, you know, big, big shoes and nose. I mean, um, just comedy character. But basically, uh, the wire is pretty serious, you know, and so kind of creating anything that is, is self-effacing or, you know, it's a... Uh, I play the character Fat Frank, for instance, 
and I'm not in the shape of most acrobats, you know, while, while currently. And, and that's a, definitely a point of comedy. You'll, I don't want to give too much away. It's a funny, funny yeah. bit. But, again, uh, that juxtaposition strikes me as a really interesting one because, again, we're used to seeing only a certain style of body on stage, um, which just reinforces certain notions of beauty and so forth in our culture. So anything that subverts that by saying, look, here's a different kind of body, here is a different approach to art, uh, and, and let's laugh while being serious at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, so that, that for me, the, the, the reason to keep doing this or to continue with, you know, touring or um, keep doing the Frat Pack uh, act is because I do get quite a lot of attention um, <laughs> from, from, from the visitors of the show for being sexy, which is just ironic to me because I spent my 20s being super sexy and six packs and muscles, and, and now I'm being asked to do, you know, very scantily clad photo shoots while being 50 pounds overweight, you know? It's, it's, a, it's, it's an ironic space, place to be. Tell us about some of the other acts that are in the show, Micah. Well, the, uh, the whole show starts with a beautiful, raunchy kind of um, chair stacking act where he goes all the way to the top of the tent, followed by um, a banquet act with four men. And it's fantastic, really. They're just flying all over the place. You have to come see the show to really understand. And we have, of course, the wire act, our straps act. Um, we have a high bar act that actually isn't in the Vegas show. Yeah, that, that, that's sort of the new... Exciting first, I believe it's the the first high bar act in a Spiegel tent to date, as that you know, as we'll say in the circus. Yeah, yeah. Before somebody else goes, hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't fact check me, please. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, hold on. I'll just quickly Google that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell us about life on the road, because there's a certain amount of glamour associated with performing and touring, but also uh, having plenty of friends in the industry. I know that life out of suitcases in endless hotel rooms can get a bit dispiriting. So, how do you kind of balance out the challenges of touring and, and keep yourself sane? Well, this is actually my first tour so I'm kind of working through all the little challenges but I just keep looking at the positive side that I'm in a new city everywhere I go and I get to have the freedom to explore yeah I mean you get you uh, actually we have pretty great accommodations <laughs> um, we're, in, we're in a really awesome place on the south bank and um, Melbourne has just been so beautiful and and exploring is sort of organic you just go outside and you go I'm gonna go right today and then you find yourself you know by a cafe uh, getting you know like wonderful restaurants it's just just really it helps to be in cool cities so when you know you're looking at the 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 riverbank you can't there's not you know maybe you don't have enough closet space today but <laughs> geez it's beautiful you know <laughs> like, but next city you will so you know you just it's part of the life you know yeah and uh in terms of the show itself you'd obviously have to be a fairly tight network uh to to keep the show tight and together on the road how much time do you spend socializing with your fellow performers on uh do you all hang out together are you really just a, a big family or is it the show over and it's like right i'll see you tomorrow night <laughs> give me some space uh, go ahead. Well, for me, I've been spending every day outside of rehearsal time with some of the other performers, and hopefully that continues because everyone's really wonderful in the cast. Also, uh, Melbourne's the second stop on our on our Australia tour, so a lot of the time is spent. Get, we're still getting to know each other, but there's a camaraderie amongst performers, I'm sure, in general. But you know, the the crew. I mean, we're all working to make this awesome show, and at the end of the day. From you know the, every crew member and, and a rigger to every artist and artistic director, you know 
everybody's working really hard together, so it's bonding no matter what you do. And bonding, I suspect, for the audience as well. There's something about watching a show like this that brings kind of a, a, a complete group of strangers together. They, sh- they have this shared experience by the end of the night that uh, it's one of the things that makes live performance such a delight, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's the, that is the magic. Yeah. Micah and Paul, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, as we say in Australia, chookers for the season. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you so much. My next guest joins me on the line from Sydney, filmmaker Dean Francis. is the director of the feature film Drown, uh, one of four Australian features showing at this year's Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Dean, good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, it's a bumper year for Australian queer cinema, obviously, because it's usually uh, the MQFF will have a bunch of Australian shorts. If it's very lucky, it might have one Australian feature film. Why do you think that... Is it just luck or circumstance that there are four features in the festival this year, or is there something in the water? <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it's a combination of a number of things. Certainly one of the things is, of course, the fact that production technology you know, has become much more accessible. And, you know, this is empowering filmmakers and storytellers to tell stories without the necessity of marketplace attachments, large distribution deals, all that kind of stuff. It means people can just get out there and really make films that they're passionate about. And it's exciting to see this happening. It certainly is exciting. It, the challenge is that it can... Uh, uh, it's, it's like the... I'm just remembering what happened. I used to be on the programming committee of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Suddenly everybody was able to make films when technology changed, and that's not always is a good thing because uh, it does mean that occasionally there's a um, the equipment is there but the ideas aren't but tell us about the idea for drown which is your second feature film people may know you as a as a short filmmaker or as the director of the the australian feature film roadkill from 2010 uh-huh. drown your second feature based i understand on a play uh-huh. did, did you see the play and then think this needs to be a film or how did it come about on back in 2001 and the writer of it, Stephen Davis, sent me the play because uh, he wanted me to, to mount a stage production in Sydney of it. But I read it and I was so kind of moved by it. I, I really connected so deeply with it and um, I really thought it would work very well as a film. So I began the adaptation process in collaboration with the playwright. We fleshed out the backstory of the characters. We expanded it from basically two people on a beach to this whole sort of non-linear world which takes us back to the previous year of these characters' lives. And it went from basically a two-hander to being a very large, very detailed ensemble piece that takes place over a huge number of different locations. Now, it's a film which is uh, picking up on a a few themes that you've explored in the past. Uh, Masculinity, violence, sexuality. Um, I haven't watched the film yet because I want to watch it with an audience. I hate previewing films by sitting in front of my computer at home. It's, It's... doesn't do the films justice. But I've read uh, quite a few of the reviews that are available on drownthemovie.com and I get the feeling like some of your other films such as the the short Boy's Grammar that you made I think back in 2008 uh, Drown is a feature that some people are going to find quite confronting. (laughs) Yeah, it's 
funny. Uh, whenever I make a film that's really close to my heart, uh, it seems to elicit a very strong reaction, either really passionately positive or I absolutely hate this film. <laughs> so we've been seeing this. Um, but, you know, that said, uh, you know, I was very conscious of making this film a very fun ride for the audience, and I was at a screening at Bondi here in Sydney last night, and I was just thrilled to see the way the audience really got behind the humour of the piece and, and really seemed to be enjoying the ride. Um, there's a lot of fun within the film. There's some fantastic nightclub sequences that we were lucky enough to shoot at the midnight shift. Uh, and we did a lot of work in King's Cross. And, of course, this is before these lockout laws where King's Cross at 2 a.m. is basically a zoo. And we were, we were literally right there in the thick of it. So we've captured a lot of the fun, I think, of, of the night scene. We've captured a lot of the fun of the, uh, the, the competitive sporting aspect of, of surf lifesaving. But, I mean, you know, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that this, the, the film is, is deliberately provocative. Um, uh, you know, it is rated R um, for its, um, its high-impact sexual violence. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't shy away from these very dark issues of bullying and homophobia in sport. Why are these themes that fascinate you so much that compel you to tell stories? You know, I, I've always believed that film is a medium that has got the potential to impact society and create change. That's why I, made, I got into making films in the first place. My, my early shorts were these angry, violent, um, you know, sort of brain spews of a confused 17-year-old. Um, and, you know, th this is something that I think needs to change, is, is society needs to be less homophobic and more inclusive. And I think particularly in areas like uh, the, in, in the sporting community. And by making a film about this, already we've been able to start a discussion um, in the mainstream community about these issues. Uh, there's certainly a lot of chatter going on about um, the subject matter in the film. Um, so, you know, I like to hope that, that by making a film that's, that's really going to sort of get under people's skin, we can, in some small way, um, you know, bring the world towards uh, the place I think we all want it to be, which is more inclusive and accepting. Homophobia in sport is certainly, uh, it is a hot topic. Uh, the AFL, in fact, just had their inaugural Pride round, I believe, uh, in Sydney only on the weekend just gone. Yeah. Um, by making a film like Drown, which is looking at um, homophobia within a particular subset uh, of the sporting community, if you like, uh, of surf lifesavers, is this a, a classic example of um, the story of many being told by analysing just the the small interactions of a, of a small community. Well, definitely, and um, the surf life-saving world is emblematic of, of, of Sydney culture, um, in, in a sense, and, and Australian culture more largely. Um, it's a microcosm that reflects many of the values of mainstream society. Um, you know, there's been a lot of questions sort of put about, you know, are we making an attack on the surf life-saving community, blah, blah, blah. No, I mean, these issues exist across all sporting codes, but I think more broadly they exist in a lot of different aspects of society, not just sport. Um, you know, I think really what the film addresses is the very fairly narrowly defined expectations that are placed on masculinity, basically. So by sort of fundamentally sort of unpicking that, and, and mateship is part of that as well, this idea that we all kind of band together and, and, you know, we can't attack our mates and even if they're doing dreadful things, you know, we should, we should sort of stand back and, and passively watch them. Uh, you know, we, we see this kind of pack mentality 
um, and, and unfortunately a lot of these violent and homophobic attacks that, that, that go on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think the, this is the lens through which we, we, we you know, examine that issue. It certainly makes a fantastic and very cinematic backdrop that um, you know, gives us reach into other territories around the world as well because of how iconic it is. But really the film could be set in a large number of places, I think. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Dean Francis, the director of the new Australian feature film Drown, which is having its uh, Melbourne premiere as part of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, uh, a session this Saturday, the 21st of March, 3pm at Acme at Fed Square. My understanding is that that session is pretty close to being sold out, standby tickets only at the moment. Um, Dean, tell us about the making of the film and also the distribution model that you're using. I understand you crowdsourced funding to make the film. Are you now also distributing it that way, i.e. encouraging people to hold screenings rather than using a more traditional distribution model? From the start, it was really important to me to tell this story like quickly because I felt it was very topical, but also not to filter it through the processes, uh, you know, of like you know state-supported development funding, distrib- distributors, all that sort of stuff. Because inevitably, what will happen is they'll make your projects more suitable to the marketplace, which potentially waters down the the message of the film. So yes, we crowdfunded the thing to begin with, and we basically just got started on production with, really without enough money to finish it, and. It, it was one of these, it was like a magnet, it just gained so much energy and momentum as people contributed to the film and, and brought more and more resources to us and lent us their time. Um, so it was a film that really uh, the, the, our community felt a, a tremendous sense of ownership of. Um, so now, a couple of years later, we're in the distribution phase, and the same thing is true. There's still a lot of uh, interest from the, you know, in, um, on social media in the film, and rather than sort of dump the film in, you know, five theatres and and hope the first week goes well and that it spreads out. And as we know, you know, looking at the sort of terrible results of last year, it's, that's a very dangerous situation for an Australian film to, to just have a small limited release because they just don't work financially. We decided to mobilise the crowd of people who were already um, behind the film and to get them involved in distribution. And the timing has been fantastic because it coincides with the launch of this new platform called Tug Cinema On Demand. And through this platform, anyone can basically basically request a screening in their local area at their local cinema uh, and if they can mobilize like 50 or 60 people to come and watch the movie then they also get to get a percentage of the box office so there's a number of, of incentives and what we've found is that this is particularly exciting for you know say community groups like for example we've got a rugby team that we're talking to right now who want to screen the film um, as well as raising money for their team it's a fantastic way to start this discussion and, and to, to you know really make homophobia and bullying talking points within the the the, uh, the team and for me of course this fulfills both objectives because you know one I get my film seen and the, you know, it gives us a revenue stream but more importantly uh, it, it, it the film becomes a way in which people can organize around the ideas in the film and um, start discussing them um, it's interesting that we hear so much in the media uh, about the the failure of Australian films at the box office and there's endless hand-wringing and, and endless think pieces saying, Can I, is it because the films are too dark? Is it, and the variety of reasons. And we've seen certainly the success of The Mule last year, for example, prove that it's often much more about distribution models, uh, making films accessible and thinking outside of the square, and, as you say, instead of dumping it at, a, uh, at maybe 
two cinemas around the country and hoping that it will find an audience when the the advertising, saturated advertising from the latest Hollywood blockbusters is what you're competing with. So the fact that people can go to www.drownthemovie.com and use the Cinema On Demand function to host a screening themselves is a great way to get uh, new Australian films seen by the audiences who want to see them. And, and also, too, it actually allows us to, sort of, you know, what I think is reclaim cinema and empower audiences because, you know, I think we're all a bit sick of going down to the local multiplex and there's, like, you know, five or six films on, but ultimately they're, they're kind of the same film. I mean, certainly they're saying the same thing. I mean, you know, I think if you look sort of 10, 15 years ago and, and before that, film was much more of an art form and, uh, you know, filmmakers really had something to say. So I'm really optimistic that, um, you know, things like Cinema on Demand can, can be fantastic for audiences who will you know, really get much greater ownership over the choices available to them at the cinema. Um, Dean, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. I'm, as I said, I haven't watched Drown yet, but having seen the trailer and read a lot about it, I'm very, very keen to see it with an audience at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. Well, I can't wait to show it to you, Richard, and thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. Catch you soon. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Full of Celluloid is our fortnightly screen culture segment with Cerise Howard, who uh, joins us after a mad dash across town. Hello. Hello. It's uh, lovely to be here. It was a mad dash. Uh, here in one piece, all as well. Excellent, excellent. Now, I understand that uh, you're rather excited about a film called Leviathan, <laughs> which you seem to have been exclaiming about left, right and centre. Yeah, it's pretty terrific. It's um, a new Russian film. Um, now, <laughs> I'm going to have my work cut out for me with a, a few names here, um, including the directors. It's the new film from Andrei mm, Zvyagintsev, uh, director of the much-acclaimed, and I think both uh, released here, Eleanor from 2011 and The Return from 2003. I, I've only seen The Return, mm. but it was a, a masterful mm. film, sparse and poignant yeah. and... Uh, uh, contemplative, cold and beautiful. Yeah, this film's got that in spades as well. Um, it doesn't open until next week, uh, but uh, you know, I'm so excited about this and I won't have a chance possibly to talk about it. I may be away in a fortnight's time, Richard, I might be getting about, as I am sometimes wont to do. Um, but this is the winner of the Best Foreign Language Film at the 72nd Glo uh, Golden Globe Awards, also nominated for an Oscar, pipped at the post by Ida, the Polish film, some would say controversially. Um, this is a, a really <laughs> extraordinary, rather grim film set in a, a dank uh, coastal town uh, with, a, a, again, a very difficult-to-pronounce name, uh, in which communist-era architecture stands tall and unimpressive, um, with one outstanding building being uh, Collier's Place, this um, rather lovely... Um, it's got that sort of real bespoke uh, craftsmanship feel to it. Uh, it's been in his family a long time. Um, but Collier uh, is, is a bit of a hothead. He's out of work, um, lives with his stepwife, not in an entirely harmonious relationship with his son from a previous marriage. And uh, things are, are going a bit tough for him, but get immediately a lot worse when he learns that the extremely corrupt local mayor has designs on his rather lovely uh, waterside property. Um, 
what can be done. Uh, how, do you, how do you go toe-to-toe with uh, crooked um, politicians? Now, fortunately, he has an old army mate, um, who uh, Dimitri, who's become a hotshot Moscow lawyer who comes to town and has dug up some dirt on the mayor and uh, looks like he's got a bit of leverage. And <laughs> it, it, we're very much given the impression that this is actually kind of how Russia might be working generally. It's not just a, a, an odd story, an, an unusual story of life in, uh, the Russian, in a Russian backwater, but perhaps just a, a state of the nation. Um, there are some cops who are a little bit iffy. Um, there is an awful lot of drunkenness and gun-toting and um, uh, masculinity, you could say, just running amok. Um, as Colia's uh, plight seemingly gets better and better, but then um, much, much worse. <laughs> the film ultimately is, uh, takes a turn for the devastating, and uh, few films have affected me as much as this one uh, in recent times. Richard, it's, it's, it's exquisitely beautiful. But very sort of classically shot. There's not a whole lot of extravagant camera movement. In fact, there's precious little of that at all. Just a lot of beautiful compositions and extraordinary actorly performances. Um, yeah, uh, a lot of the cast does give the impression of being drunk for quite a bit of the time. Uh, something I find very intriguing is that 35% of the funding for this film came from Russia's Ministry of Culture. It is believed, uh, I, well, I believe, that subsequent to this film, uh, irrespective of the accolades it's received on the festival circuit and at awards ceremonies, uh, the Russians are rather uh, more careful about what things they fund because um, this is pretty scathing, and, um, but also quite heartbreaking. It has that personal level, but also the, the, the bigger picture. Well, look, it's been getting magnificent reviews around yeah, the world. It has. Um, the fact that, uh, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, which is one of those aggregate, mm. aggregator sites, it's 99% uh, mm. fresh, which is, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, it's either rate fresh or rotten. Um, so, yeah, five-star reviews uh, and to acclaim left, right and centre um, because, yeah, it's not just stunningly shot. Uh, what it says, as you say, about contemporary Russian society. Yeah, look, it takes some uh, pot shots, really actually quite literally, at a number of uh, recent Russian heads of state uh, and humorously falls short of a certain um, incumbent uh, troublesome Russian head of state, but uh, that, that, that omission is itself alluded to very clearly and there's, there's definitely no small amount of mischief and indeed satire in this film, uh, but that said, too, it is a, a family drama. It's a drama uh, surrounding the concerning the goings-on in a small town where there's more or less no hope from anybody there unless you're a crook, or at least uh, a crook's heavy. Um, it is not going to be something that the Russian Tourist Board would be delighted about, I shouldn't think, but I think it's a spectacular film, and um, even just for the, the, its oddball moments of comedy, uh, as uh, in particular a, a courtroom scene where a court president recites uh, at just lightning speed, um, just a, I mean, it seems like nonsense. Even the subtitles, uh, I don't think it's just bad subtitling, I think it's just really um, just, just putting it out there that uh, perhaps the whole Russian legal system leaves a little bit to be desired and is a little too open to interpretation, cronyism and... Uh, baddies having their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leviathan is in cinemas when? Uh, next Thursday. It's not in a wide release, um, but look, it's just going to be one of the great films of the year, and folks just ought 
get along. And also, I, no, I'll just let it go, actually. It's enough of Leviathan. Okay. I could just wax lyrical for a bit longer. You, mean, you might be wondering what the title's all about. <laughs> uh, well, having seen the poster mm. uh, and also uh, knowing um, something of the biblical references mm-hmm. uh, uh, to which elements of the film's plot allude, yeah. I think I have an idea of, of uh, what the title is about. Yes. But and indeed the church are implicated in it all. Of course they are because they're so much a part of the fabric of Russian society. Yeah. yeah. So that's the new Russian film Leviathan in cinemas from next week. Cerise is, uh, mm. is enraptured by oh, it. I am. I thought it was just so terrific. Uh, it's long, um, but I'd really like to see it again uh, and just soak it all up another time. Yeah. Uh, now, have, has it already been reviewed by your colleagues on Plato's No, Cave, no, I think that awaits us another... Mm, probably on Monday night. Oh, I think Monday week, actually. We'll wait till after it's released in that case. So you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, just quickly, what else is going on in the, in the film world? Well, I'm really excited about a couple of events at the Melbourne Recital Centre over the next couple of evenings. Just, um, something that appeals to me hugely is expanded cinema, by which I mean a film presentation, but where the uh, experience is not limited to what is on the screen or coming through the speakers, but which uh, it might instead be provided by um, live performance. Or, um, it could be musical, it could be theatrical, it could be narrative. Um, in this case, uh, on Friday night and Saturday night, uh, two cult horror films uh, receiving this sort of treatment um, from, I'm told, New Zealand's leading musical madman, Leon, <laughs> another lovely Slavic name here, uh, Radojkovic, perhaps. <laughs> um, and it's uh, Carnival of Souls. Have you ever seen that really extraordinary one-off? No, yeah, I've heard about it. It's a it, real oddity. Um, the only film by a, a chap named Herc Harvey it's a, a very peculiar black and white horror film, um, which uh, I can. Uh, I'm hugely looking forward to seeing screened with live score and live foley. Something I've always enjoyed, um, not just for the, the fact of somebody actually making those noises, but that you can usually see something of it and and uh, relish in the um, often the homespun uh, innovata- um, innovation and um, ingenuity. The, yeah. uh, you know, the way that um, various sounds are produced is often very humorous indeed. indeed. Yeah, and so the Saturday night offering is Francis Ford Coppola's first mainstream feature. I do believe he made a little soft porno or two beforehand. Uh, but Dementia 13, uh, and it's a film I haven't seen in a very long time, but I remember the Melbourne Cinematheque screening a very long time ago, and, and finding it hugely enjoyable. I mean, Coppola was obviously pretty clever from the get-go, but it's just a completely loopy uh, film involving an axe murderer and um, it's sort of a slasher flick and something to do with the Irish and um, uh, yeah, just a peculiar low-budget gothic horror film made for Roger Corman uh, back in the day and it too will be getting this sort of live audio treatment with uh, all the bells and whistles I think quite literally. So I I love this sort of stuff. Um, I'm also a a huge fan and uh, I know also the Bluegrassy Knoll have got another uh, session coming up at the Melbourne Recital later in the year as well. So again Do you know if it's Buster? I don't I'm assuming it's a Buster Keaton film. Mm. That's, um, that's what they are best known for. Yeah. Um, They're fantastic. Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, so this is happening at the Melbourne Recital Centre this Friday and Saturday. Yeah, night. it's called, um, under the, the heading Live Live Cinema, um, Friday and Saturday at 8pm. The tickets are, yeah, they're a little bit, but I rather think this is a fairly elaborate production to stage, uh, not least for just one night. It only for each of those two films. So I think it's about 60 bucks or 50 concession. But perhaps there are some packages as well, I think, uh, if you buy in bulk. So, yeah, uh, 
I just, uh, look, I don't know anything of the calibre of the music of this um, New Zealand's leading musical madman, Leon Radojkovic, but, um, Novich, but uh, I would wager it's going to be a hoot. time for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company this week. I'll be back next Thursday between 9am and midday to uh, talk more about the arts. Catch you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.